sermon passage today is Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 30. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him, and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the hill, the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Well, it's been a while, a little while, since we were in the Gospel of Luke together as a church, so our habit is to pick a book of the Bible and walk through it, little by little, see what God would say to us through his written word. And we started doing this uh, last fall in the Gospel of Luke, Uh, but over the past few weeks we took a brief hiatus from that study to think more about the Advent season, Christmas time what it means that Jesus came to be God with us. Last week, we tried to, in some ways, try to set a a tone for 2020 by going to the 62nd Psalm, remembering we can only find true rest and refuge in God. Today, though, we're back for the next three weeks, at least, to pick up again in Luke's gospel. And so to refresh our memories a little bit, church family, uh, let's remember Luke is a physician Uh, who's writing an account of Jesus' ministry, probably in the early 60s AD. Uh, He's a careful writer uh, who is using solid sources to write about what's true concerning Jesus. So remember the first few verses of the gospel account when he addresses this man named Theophilus, the man whom he's writing this gospel account for. And he says, it seemed good to me also having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So this is Luke's intention in these 24 chapters, to communicate truth that will lead to certain belief and trust. And so this is our 12th study in this book, and we've reached the middle of chapter 4. Luke has taken us through the details of Jesus' infancy narrative, how he was born, Uh, We saw a little bit of when he was about a 12-year-old boy in the temple. Uh, We saw how he grew and and was baptized uh, and blessed by God as he was baptized in the Jordan. 
And the last time we were in this gospel, right before Thanksgiving, we saw Jesus at the outset of his ministry, having been baptized, all his glory, be led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And that brings us to the passage Jane has just read for us. So in Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 15, we see a sort of summary of what will be Jesus' ministry in Galilee. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So Jesus' ministry begins, and it begins in Galilee, this, this, north, uh, this region in the north of Palestine. Jesus will be in Galilee, in that area, until chapter 9, when we'll read in verse 51 that he sets his face to Jerusalem to die for his people. So here, midway through chapter 4, we begin a new kind of section in Luke. And it's this ministry of Jesus in Galilee. And And it seems like Luke starts off his narrative by going a little out of order on purpose. So if you go to Matthew's gospel or Mark's gospel later this afternoon, you'll see that Jesus's visit to Nazareth that we're about to look at, that Jane just read for us, comes a bit later in those gospels. So Matthew 13, Mark 6. Here, Luke moves this story to sort of the beginning. Uh, And he does this on purpose to show truths about the work of Jesus that we'll begin to study. So, in fact, one scholar calls this passage the keynote address of Jesus' ministry. So Luke is pushing this to the beginning to kind of give us context and set the stage for for going forward. So what, what do we learn? Two simple points to help us just follow the text this morning. Scripture fulfilled, Jesus rejected. Scripture fulfilled, Jesus rejected. So, church, look with me at verse 16 as we start by seeing Scripture fulfilled. So, in verse 16, Jesus comes to Nazareth, his hometown. Luke tells us there it's a town where Jesus had been brought up. He's an adult at this point. He spent his life in this small town with his mother, Mary, and her husband, Joseph, and his half-brothers and half-sisters. And now he returns to his neck of the woods under very different circumstances. He's now more well-known. Word has spread about the ministry of this Jesus. But he returns to his small hometown, and it's the Sabbath. So he goes to the synagogue. Uh, So the the main place of worship in, in this time in Israel was the temple in Jerusalem, right? But in smaller towns, there were these things called synagogues, these places of worship and also teaching and education. Uh, These synagogues would have a a sort of pulpit and a a stash of scrolls containing parts of the Old Testament. And during Sabbath services, there were usually readings from the prophets and the law. Uh, A man might then present a teaching about the scripture. So Jesus is present at this synagogue gathering, and he stands up to read, and he, by the attendant of the synagogue, he's given a scroll of Isaiah. We, we know Isaiah, don't we? Just spent four of the last five weeks in Isaiah, looking specifically at texts where Isaiah promises salvation for Israel, particularly through a coming king, a, a suffering servant. And Jesus receives the scroll, and, and he picks a spot to read. He picks what, in part, what Kyle read for us earlier in Isaiah chapter 61. There's also a reference to Isaiah 58, but most of this is Isaiah 61. And in fact, if you think about it, Jesus could have turned to any part of any scroll to teach about himself, couldn't he? 
So Jesus is the main point of the entire Bible. All scripture looks to him. So at the end of John's of Luke's gospel, which Lord willing we'll get to at some point, Jesus is with a pair of guys on the Emmaus road and he interprets to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. One of the joys of coming to God's word, church, is that it always points us to God's son, to God's salvation for sinners like us. It's not just Matthew, it's not just Mark, it's not just Luke, it's not just John that revealed Jesus to us. There's no sort of God in the Old Testament who got cranky in the New Testament, or was cranky in the Old Testament, got softened in the New Testament. All of Scripture is about one God who does not change. All Scripture points to one Savior. And here in the Nazarene synagogue, Jesus chooses Isaiah 61. It's a passage about these glory days to come for Israel, the time when God will bring salvation. Jesus picks it up and he reads. I love how the the British author Glenn Scrivener puts it. He says, Jesus finds his own words that he had inspired to be written by Isaiah. And so he reads. And these words written, read aloud by the Son of God come alive. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It's quite a passage. But Jesus is done. The reading's over. He hands the scroll back. He sits down, so it's customary in the synagogue to stand up to read God's word and to sit down to teach. And the tension Luke builds in his writing is palpable for us. There are no head nodders in this church service. Look at verse 20. Jesus rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. So what happens? Verse 21. And Jesus began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That new era of God's blessing on Israel, it's here, folks. What was always tomorrow, what was always future, is now today, is now present. Jesus is saying he's bringing the kingdom of God. He says he's indwelled by the Spirit of God. We saw this at his baptism back in chapter 3, how John the Baptist baptized him and the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus in bodily form like a dove. And Jesus is not just blessed or somehow uh, given the Holy Spirit for a time like we see in the Old Testament. He's full of it. He's full of the Spirit of God. And he's come to do what? To proclaim good news. He's come to tell Israel salvation has arrived. We see here the perfect picture of who salvation is for. We read about this earlier in 1 Corinthians 1, right? People in need, the poor, the captive, the blind, the oppressed. Jesus has come to save them, not merely their physical needs, but he's come ultimately for their spiritual needs. Yes, he'll heal the blind, but only as a sign that he's come to heal the spiritually blind. To open the eyes of his people to their sin and their Savior. 
So it's to a people in need that Jesus, the Savior, comes to proclaim good news, saying, I'm the Savior. I'm what you need. And church family, before we move along and see kind of the main part of this passage, which is the Nazarene's response to Jesus and his sermon, let's just remember here that the the incredible joy of proclaiming good news. We are in such good news, or such need of good news in this world, right? Especially with kind of the, the rapid speed with which we can access headlines on our phones. We're always feeling the need to hear something good something hopeful, something about peace reached or lives saved. And here, addressing the deepest need for peace in mankind, Jesus says he's coming, bringing good news, the best news. And he's come to bring that for who? For the poor, for the captive, for the blind, for the needy. He's come to bring liberty, sight. He's come to bring the year of God's favor, which isn't just a year. Christian, when we speak the gospel to others, we come with that same message. We come in much of the same way Jesus came, filled with the Spirit. I mean, that fact alone should bowl us over with amazement, that we are indwelled by the same Spirit of God which indwelled Jesus Christ. And we are given kind of the same good news to proclaim in that spirit good news to the poor, liberty to the captive. I think when we talk about evangelism, we often think about obstacles to evangelism and how to overcome that. But what about the greatest reason for evangelism? And that is that we come to tell people about God's favor towards them. To tell people God has shown them grace. How he has sent a messenger with good news. How he has sent good news itself in Jesus. Christian, this is the message we share. The Spirit empowers us to proclaim Jesus Christ as the Savior we need and the Savior those around us need. I, I wonder if, if one way we might apply this passage this week is to, is to pick one person, just one, with whom we can say one thing about Jesus this week. One person who does not know him. So just right now, in your mind, think of a person you'll come in contact with this week who does not know Jesus. You have that person? I have it. One guy came to mind. I was like, I don't think he's the best candidate, but I want to try. Try to say one thing to them this week about Jesus. One thing that at least begins to proclaim good news of God's favor. If you'd like, send me an email over the next few days with a name, or if you're not comfortable with that, some info. I'll include it in our newsletter for members in the middle of the week so we can all be praying. There's a sort of kind of a movement among Baptist churches right now that some of you might have heard of called Who's Your One? And it's good. Who's who's your one? Who's your one person that you can pray for and reach with Christ? We want those around us to know God's favor. So we see scripture fulfilled, church, but the overall feel of this passage, the overall emphasis is what happens next, and that is Jesus rejected. Jesus rejected. So it kind of makes sense to assume Jesus said more than that simple sentence, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Uh, Luke says there in that verse that he began to say, 
So I think it's safe to, to think he may have expounded even more on these passages from Isaiah that he's read. And his gracious words have an effect on his hearers. Look with me at verse 22. And all spoke well of Jesus and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. There's a sort of, a, of an astonishment among the people. But in the midst of this kind of wonderment, there's a hint of doubt. You see that in verse 22? I mean, this is, this is Jesus, right? This is Joseph's son, right? So perhaps they're impressed by his words, but the, the truth of what he's saying, I mean, is that for real? I mean, they know him. They know his family. This is Nazareth, people. Like, is not this Joseph's son? It's pretty impressive what he's saying, but I don't know if I'm there. Jesus is insightful. He knows that below there marveling lies unbelief, skepticism about who he claims to be, and so he vocalizes what they're only thinking. Don't you hate when that happens? He just unveils what they're considering, and he says in verse 23, doubtless, surely, you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you do at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. So stories had evidently made their way to Jesus' hometown. And now that he's arrived, it's like his family and friends see him, and they're just like, but we want to see it for ourselves. A sermon's all fine and good. What about the after show? What about proof? So they marvel, but they don't believe. Jesus is a familiar face to them. It's difficult to think he would be such a great bearer of salvation. So they think, physician, heal yourself. It's like they're saying, you're talking about all this stuff. Show us. And Jesus sees abiding unbelief in their hearts, and he won't be put to the test. His people won't believe his words. He will not show them his signs. But he keeps talking. So in response to their unbelief, he says in verse 24, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Another proverb. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. Jesus digs back into the Old Testament and tells this story of another prophet sent by God named Elijah. Elijah had told Ahab, the wicked king of Israel at the time, that God would judge his people with famine, and it had happened. And in the midst of that famine, Elijah found refuge not in Israel, but in a Gentile land. God chose a single woman, a, a widow, after, nonetheless, to, to be a source of miraculous sustenance for Elijah so he and her and her son could survive. You can read about this in 1 Kings 17 and 18. But the thing is, the woman was, was not an Israelite. She was a Phoenician. 
from Sidon, a Gentile, a non-Jew, not one of God's chosen people. Yet Jesus says here that for that prophet Elijah during that time of judgment on Israel, when he was rejected by Israel, he took salvation to the outcast, to the poor woman outside Israel's border. Okay, Jesus, what are you saying? Well, he's not done. Verse 27. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Another prophet, the prophet Elisha, who took over after Elijah. And this story is of a Syrian, non-Israelite, named Naaman who on a raid in Israel had taken captive an Israelite slave girl who told him his leprosy could be cured by the prophet of God in Israel. You can read about this in 2 Kings. And so while there were many lepers in Israel who remained leprous, God ordained it for a Syrian, a, a Gentile, an enemy of God's people, nonetheless, to be brought to the prophet of Israel and healed. And he was. So what's Jesus saying? He's looking at the unbelieving hearts of his people, his kinfolk, in his hometown of Nazareth, and he sees their skepticism. He sees their, their need for a sign. And he says, you know what? It's like I'm Elijah. I'm taking salvation to the outsiders. He says, it's like I'm Elisha called to heal those even outside Israel. In a way, he's subtly, or perhaps not so subtly, condemning his own family hometown. These Nazarenes for unbelief, for even treating him, the capital P prophet of the Lord, like they, like unfaithful Israel had treated the prophets of the Old Testament. Rejecting them. And he shows, even at this point in his ministry, that the good news he has come to reclaim is not merely for them, but for everyone. And the response that was marveling skepticism, but kind of astonishment, is now murderous rage. Well, what makes you angry? This made them furious. Because they know exactly what Jesus is implying. He's saying they're unfaithful. That they've rejected God's prophet. He's saying so God's blessing will now go to your enemies. How dare he? Jesus. Son of Joseph. One of us. One of this small town of Nazareth. Condemning us? Coming back to condemn us like this? How dare he? Verse 28, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove Jesus out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. Jesus had condemned them. And they would condemn him. I'm not sure exactly where that cliff was. It might have been a prelude to stoning. You'd cast somebody down a hill and then stone them to finish the job. 
In their self-righteous anger, the Nazarenes take rage to where it always meets its logical end. Murder. Their anger lusts after vengeance. Their anger hates that their pride has been wounded. Their anger kills. They take Jesus away to slay him, to end his ministry. So ferocious is their fury. But it's not yet time for Jesus to die. Oh, he will die on a hill. But not on this one. Not here. Not yet. Verse 30 shows how he passes through their midst and goes away. We're not sure if this was some sort of miraculous event or if it was just kind of with practical means. It's just clear Jesus escaped. See, church, Jesus came to die, but he was in total control of when that death would occur. I like how Daryl Bach, uh, a New Testament scholar that I've been using for this, this series in Luke, he writes, people cannot bring Jesus to his death. Rather, Jesus will choose to offer himself up in their behalf. Jesus will choose when he dies. And when he dies, Jesus will bear the angry, murderous rage of his people on himself. Those Nazarenes couldn't follow through on the job. But eventually, Herod, Pilate, and the Jewish leaders would. And Jesus would be slain on a hill for his claims to be God's Savior. He would do it for his people. If you're here and you're, you're not a Christian, we're so happy where you're here. We hope you feel welcomed. We just want you to see that, that here for all of us, but specifically for you, I think it'd be helpful to see that Jesus even here is, is giving a hint of why he's come. He's come to be rejected, not just by his hometown, but by his entire people. He will be hung on a cross and rejected, finally, even by God, his Father. So you can be accepted. See, every one of us craves acceptance. Every one of us wants the affirmation of those we love. And at that, its root, that desire in all of us is, is rooted in our desire to be accepted by God. By the one who gives us meaning. By the one who created us. The problem is sin makes it impossible to be accepted by God. He is holy. And our sin is a rebellion against him. It'd be, it'd be like a judge knowing someone is guilty of a crime. Knowing they are uh, deserving of judgment, but just kind of letting them off, setting them up with some money, showing them favor. That's not right. That's not just. Neither would it be just for God to accept us when we have turned against him, every single one of us. But that's why Jesus came, to bear God's judgment on our sin, to be rejected in our place so we can be accepted forever. Friend, if you haven't trusted in Jesus, see what he did on the cross, bearing your sin. Trust in him. Be saved. And church, as, as we look at the unbelief of Jesus' hometown, there, there are two things I'd like us to just kind of contemplate as we wrap up this passage this morning. I think these are two dangers to true belief in Jesus for us. 
Aaron mentioned it earlier. One of them is familiarity. I think the other is pride. Familiarity and pride. See, Jesus is coming in this text to those most familiar with him. Those who had presumably grown up with him, knew him as a neighbor, a playmate, perhaps. And it was for these very people the hardest to accept him as God's prophet. Because they knew him so well. I mean, how could, how could he be the one sent from God? And the, the saying goes, familiarity breeds contempt. And I think we see that on display here in Nazareth. And there's a warning here for us, Christian. We can be so used to Jesus that we struggle to trust him with our lives. I wonder, dear Christian, are you so familiar with Jesus that it doesn't feel like that big of a deal to disobey him? Has he become so familiar and such a fixture in your life that you sort of acknowledge him every once in a while when you feel like it, but you don't follow him? Is he, is he driving your life, or is he just one stop along the drive? He's not that big a deal, perhaps. Not big enough to kind of take risks for. Not big enough to, to lay down your life for. Not big enough to change your career for. Are you so blinded by familiarity that you don't cry out to Jesus as much anymore? You don't see as much of your need for him. You don't yearn to know him more. J.C. Ryle says, It is an evil day with our souls when Christ is in the midst of us, and yet because of our familiarity with his name, he is lightly esteemed. Friend, if that feels like you, go to him. Run to him. Do not try to fix yourself and get your emotions back to where you want them to be. Run to him. The other danger we see in the Nazarenes is pride. In Matthew's gospel, it says they took offense at Jesus. There's self-righteousness on display here in Nazareth. Jesus says they're rejecting him like the Israelites rejected the prophets of old. And he says he's taking their salvation to their enemies, the Gentiles. And they think, how? blasphemous how awful how dreadful how dare you we're going to destroy you for saying that and ultimately they kind of did we did too it was our pride that destroyed jesus wasn't it it was our sin that we could run our lives and be the kings of our own kingdoms that hung jesus on that tree so Christian, unrepentant pride in your heart will never be able to coexist with repentant trust in Jesus. Unrepentant pride in your heart will never be able to coexist with repentant trust in Jesus. Believing in Jesus means laying down pride, self-righteousness, to gain his righteousness. So where, where might you be resistant against Jesus due to your pride? 
Do you despise it when he shows mercy to outsiders? Do Do you feel like you're more worthy of his approval just by virtue of who you are and what your behavior is and what you've done? Jesus came for the outcast. He came for you and me. He didn't come for those comfortable in their skepticism or comfortable in their self-righteousness. He came for those who know their need, who will lay aside their pride and humble themselves before him. So church, dear church family, beware familiarity and pride. Humble yourselves under the merciful hand of Jesus because when none of us wanted to believe in him, when none of us wanted to trust in him, he showed us amazing grace. He fulfilled Isaiah 61 in each of our lives, believer, by causing the blind to see. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this passage that sobers us this morning. It's not a, a fun passage. We see here this, those closest to Jesus turning away from him. But at the same time, it's such a glorious passage because who did he turn to? He turned to the Gentile. He turned to us. We want to be Christians, Lord, who follow after Jesus with our whole hearts, believing in him alone. So forgive us for our stubborn hearts. Lead us into greater fellowship with you, especially as we come to your table now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.